She lay near the skate ramps. Nothing is still like the dead are still. The wind moves their hair as it moved hers, and they don't respond at all. She was in an ugly pose, with legs crooked as if about to get up, her arms in a strange bend. Her face was to the ground. A young woman, brown hair pulled into pigtails, poking up like plants. She was almost naked, and it was sad to see her skin smooth that cold morning, unbroken by goose flesh. China Mieville is the author of the novels King Rat, Perdido Street Station, The Scar, Iron Council, Unlondon, and the short story collection Looking for Jake. His new novel is The City and the City. Thank you for joining me, China. Thank you for having me. China, this is a novel's a departure for you into uh, crime fiction. Tell us what made you look into this genre. Um, well, there was a couple of different things. I mean, I'd been work. I've been thinking about the setting of this this novel, which is, you know, without wanting to give too much away, is basically two cities somewhere at the edge of Europe that have a, a very unusual relationship with each other. And I'd been thinking about that as a setting for some time and trying to work out what um, uh, kind of story to set there. Um, and I knew that you know, crime novels have a very kind of strong tradition of kind of urban exploration and that that kind of uncovering of 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 the of of the nature of cities um so that seemed to work um also i was interested in trying to kind of trying to do things with with the voice of a book that i hadn't necessarily done before and as you say this book is very, it's quite different from the previous books not only in its sort of genre but also in the i think in the voice and in the, the nature of the language and it's just more interesting to kind of uh, try new things and try and kind of channel new voices um and the final thing was that um it was a present for my mum because my mum was a great reader of crime novels and um she admired my earlier books but they weren't her sort of home genre, if you like. They weren't, and and so I wanted to write a book that was completely faithful to the paradigms um, of of fiction that were her that were her favourite. That was completely faithful and respectful to those protocols, and at the same time maybe brought some of my other stuff, some of the more kind of fantastic to it as well. Now, one of the things about this novel, I have to say, is that if you're a reader, it's best to go in totally cold. To, I would recommend that most readers not even read the dust jacket um, flap. And, and actually, you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. Um, you've kind of been negotiating with your publishers about how much to reveal about your books on these flaps, haven't you? Well, I, yes, I don't want to single out the publisher. I mean, I'm I'm quite sort of neurotic about spoilers. I, I uh, because partly because I think, you know, in general, you know, as a, as a culture, we don't really understand what spoilers are. Like spoilers don't necessarily have to just be about telling the events that happen in a story. I mean, in the case of you know, in, in the case of some books, in the case of this book, you know, talking a lot about the setting, I think, you know, can be can be a spoiler as well. Talking or or I remember when, for example, you know, when Sixth Sense came out, you know, everyone was saying, OK, well, there's a really great twist, but I won't spoil it. And I was like, dude, the fact that you've told me there's a twist, you just spoiled it because now I'm going to be watching it. Look, at you know, what else can it be? Which is why I guess the twist in 10 seconds. But that's, a, you know, a different discussion. So and also I should say I'm not against discussing things that you know sometimes for books or films you need to you need to discuss aspects of the plot which is where i think a warning is 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 an issue so my argument is not that one should never uh, give things away my argument is that either one should try not to give things away or if one is going to one should warn people so that they have the option of coming back to it later that's where i stand 
And so I appreciate what you're saying very much. <laughs> right. Well, I want our listeners to be warned because we might talk about, we're going to talk about this book in a way that might spoil it for you. And I would recommend that you go in cold. Now, uh, that said, you've been a fan of cities in your fiction from, from the very beginning. And could you talk about using the city as a, as a setting just in general? Why do you choose cities and, and not more rural and suburban settings? Well, um, I mean, it's it's true. I think I think largely it's just that I'm an I'm an urban creature, and I you know I grew up in cities, and I always really loved not just literally physically living in a city, but also I particularly loved um, the the fiction and sort of art that is that kind of refracts city life and that is about cities and stuff. So for me, it's always been as much to do with the kind of uh, the literary and artistic representation of cities are as much of a draw for me as as the physical cities themselves. Um, I I mean I think also these reputations that people get are sort of self self replicating. So you know, so having established, having be, you know become known to a certain extent as as a quote city writer unquote, um, that then sticks with you. So for example, Iron Council. I mean, you know, probably two-thirds of Iron Council, I, I, I think, is a really, you know, uh, effect, I hope, a really effective description of, you know, of a wilderness. But I'm never known as a wilderness writer. You know, everyone only notices the third that was actually set in the city. Having said which, I have to confess that calling a book The City and The City is stacking the decks a little bit. So I'm not going to complain about being known as, a, as an urban writer. I think that's fair enough. When you set out to write this novel as a, as a crime novel... You set out to do something rather unusual because you're combining uh, a genre that's known for for realistic settings and realistic um, uh, places, um, with in, but yet setting it in a city that doesn't really exist. Mm. Could you talk about setting that challenge for you? That's a high bar to set for yourself, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I'm I'm not I'm not sure it is in a way. I'm not sure I can take that much credit for for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is you know the the tradition of sort of the kind of imaginary city the dreamed up city but within the real world you know so um, a less overtly fantastic city than you know for example new crobazon of of my earlier books i mean that's a, that's a an honorable and long tradition of uh of particularly sort of european writing but also you know other writing as well um and when it comes to the 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 crime aspect i mean it's true that crime as a genre um, claims that it is a, genre, a realistic genre in that it's set in the real world. Nothing fantastic happens, um, and it's you know, uh, so so it's 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 realistic in that sense. Those those uh, invisible scare quotes are hopefully very audible when I say that. But one of the things I've always argued is I I don't think crime is a realist uh, genre at all. I think that's a I think that's a kind of a pretense. Now this is not a criticism. This is part of what I think makes crime such an interesting genre, but I think crime is saturated with with dream logic as a genre. I mean when you see, you know, right from the earliest days, you see kind of Conan Doyle describing Sherlock Holmes, you know, someone walks into his study and Sherlock Holmes sees the pattern of scuffs on his walking stick and is able to tell you where he went to school, how long he served in India, his sister's maiden name, you know, what he's... Now, and, and as a reader, you know, and then Watson, who is our kind of 
avatar as the reader sort of goes, oh, it's astounding, Holmes, the power of your ratiocination. And, and I'm thinking, dude, this is not realistic at all. This is dream logic. You know, this is, this is pure fantasy. Again, this is not a criticism. This is, this is part of what makes this genre so fantastic, so, so, so interesting. So I think, I think crime is actually much, much more sort of saturated with kind of a sort of a surreal um, and, and unrealistic um, uh, sort of aesthetic than it, than it pretends it is. So in a way tapping into that I think is not so much about bringing in an outside thing as maybe slightly accenting something which is already there one of the things that that struck me as I, I read this book was I, all I could think about was Bay City <laughs> so so many like uh, uh, crime novels set in California they're set in this kind of vague Bay City which is an amalgam of everything mm. between Los Angeles and San Francisco You've chosen to set your novel in Eastern Europe, uh, and could you talk about uh, some of the locations maybe you visited or you yeah. thought of as you created this yeah. cities, these two cities, and tell yeah. us a little bit about the sure. cities too. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, it, it's sort of in Eastern Europe. I mean, the you know, the idea for the setting is, the the idea for the setting is that basically somewhere at the edge of Europe. Um, if you just sort of turn slightly left or right to where you've ever been before, you, you know, you'll reach this place. So it is somewhere in the kind of fringes of Europe. Um, it's not entirely clear from the, from the city, from, from the book where it is, um, because, you know, in the same way as if you're reading a book with a kind of first person narrative about London, the, the Londoner doesn't bother to tell you exactly on a map where it is. And so hence, you know, the, the, the um, protagonist, uh, Tiado Borlu, never bothers to tell you exactly what on a map where this place is but it is you're right somewhere on the edges of Europe um, the reason that people think perfectly reasonably that it's on e Eastern Europe is that the um, I was very interested in one of the things I was trying to sort of cross fertilize I suppose with 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 noir and with sort of hard-boiled sort of police procedurals was a tradition of kind of um, Eastern European city writing um, obviously Kafka is the kind of outstanding figure but also for me writers like Paul Lepin um Alfred Kubin uh and for me actually probably above all Bruno Schultz um and the these these kind of you know um Polish and Czech and sometimes Eastern German uh East German writers that sort of depicting these kind of middle European cities that are sort of a little bit um a little bit like Prague a little bit like Budapest a little bit like you know um and so I wanted to kind of amalgam that and the first city that we open in Beschel is essentially a kind of a, a cityscape of that sort of um that that kind of Eastern European tradition the second city Ulkoma is more high tech. It's um, because it is set in the present day. It, it is much more economically advanced. It has much more kind of modern architecture. It's been doing a lot of urban renewal recently, um, and so it's kind of, you know, Singapore, Shanghai, the sort of you know, uh, um, the the high tech areas of of um, of Istanbul, sort of again amalgamed in a slightly unstable way. So. Um, that's those are the kind of ways I was really sort of trying to kind of depict these these imagined settings. As you um, created this setting, it, it's a it's a divided city, mm. and, and it I couldn't help but think of all the divided cities in our world, and um, the peculiar conditions these cities create. Well, it. Uh, to a certain extent, that is true. I mean, the thing is, 
the, the you know the 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 nature of 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 Beshel and Alcoma's relationship. Um, there's a point in the there's a point in the book where one of the characters explicitly refutes the idea that it is a divided city, um, and explicitly sort of says, you know, we are not like Budapest, we are not like Jerusalem, we are not like you know, and this says that that's not the paradigm here. Now he's not being a mouthpiece for me there necessarily because obviously there are these. I hope these sort of certain metaphoric resonances with with real world um, real world cities, which have sort of particular schisms in them. But part of the reason for that is, you know, these are these are two very separate cities. Now, the relationship between the two of them is unusual and unique, and uh, and 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 creates sort of unusual um, particularities. But they are not one city that is divided in two. They are two cities. The second thing is that I get rather i'm i'm always uncomfortable with kind of narrowly allegorical readings uh, of any book frankly but certainly of my own books and so when people sort of say um oh you know when you talk about Beshan and Alcoma are you talking about East Jerusalem or whatever and i always want to say no you know if i want to talk about East Jerusalem i'll just talk about East Jerusalem i don't need to smuggle that conversation in through the you know nefarious means of a 300 page noir novel you know so um I'm not pretending for a moment that these kind of metaphoric resonances and ideas aren't there, but I am saying that I think I hope the book is never sort of reducible to that. In terms of the relationship between the cities, what I was much more interested in was the idea that, you know, everyday borders, political borders in our world are very strange things because they're very, they're very contingent. You know, the reason that a border is here as opposed to 10 feet to the left is is often, you know, totally contingent, totally random. They're completely absurd and imagined, but they are also very, very real and they will kill you. You know, that 10 feet may be arbitrary, but if you're on the wrong side of it, you can end up dead, you know. And so that that strange kind of um, political logic of borders absurdities that are murderously true if you like i just wanted to kind of take that everyday logic and exaggerate it just a little bit but my feeling is that the the extremely strange nature of the borders between beshel and alcoma are not in fact a kind of fantastic imagination they're the everyday logic of our borders slightly exaggerated well uh, recently they just realized there is a a point in the United States where four states' borders ostensibly meet, and they just recently realized that they had marked the wrong spot. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> and so there's a, they had a big monument erected to to the four-state border, and then they realized now they have to like move it, and they're not sure what they're going to do because it's on Indian land. So there are all these kind of uh, border resonances. Um, are are really are absolutely true. Well, I you know I mean borders are very interesting things, and when you say that they're they're you know illusory, that doesn't I mean like so many things in modern in modern life, to say that they're illusory, to say that they're invented, doesn't mean to say that they're not real. They're very real, you know. Um, and you know if you think about being on one side or other of the Berlin Wall, for example, as was, you're talking about a difference, as I say, of, you know, maybe four feet and and a difference that's going to create a totally, totally different political, cultural, um, psychic milieu for whoever's on which side or the other. So, um, so, so, you know, I'm very, I mean, that, that that's the thing about borders is this kind of, this absurdity, which is true. I think that's why I'm interested in them. 
And borders also offer you a great chance to complicate a, a, a mystery, and you do a great job of that. Could you talk about, you know, border fiction and mystery fiction mingling the two? Is uh, it, it's a fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about, I mean, there's there's all kinds of. Again, it's not a particularly new thing to do to have the kind of you know the the police procedural, which is the procedural of international cooperation you know um i'm trying to remember the name of the the film with uh, arnold schwarzenegger as a russian cop who comes over to is it la to sort of help is it james belushi i can't remember any of the details but you know it, it's not and it's a kind of it's the kind of the, the the cop odd couple film or book is you know they have very different working methods and then they gradually grow to have a kind of grudging respect for each other yeah i mean you know the drill right you know the mm -hmm. drill you know and that um you know that, that that kind of fish out of water fiction you know the kind of uh naive wandering around the streets of a city that is not her or his own um uh is is a very useful device for a, for a writer for depicting um places because you get to see with a kind of slightly clearer eye than um than a, than a native inhabitant and so I mean, yes, in the city, in the city, it is, you know, that the murder turns out to have kind of international ramifications. And so Tiara Borlu has to cross from Beshel to Alcoma. Um, and so just as I hope, just as the reader is beginning to come to terms with one, hopefully sort of almost recognisable, but still quite estranged city, you then cross a border and go into another one. So hopefully that sort of, you know, wrong foots people all over again. We're going to hear a reading by China Mieville from his new book, The City and the City. It was close to 10 o'clock in the evening, more than 40 hours since we'd found the victim. Corwy drove. She made no effort to disguise her uniform, despite that we had an unmarked car, through the streets around Gunterstrasse. I had not been home until very late the previous night, and after a morning on my own in these same streets, now I was there again. There were places of crosshatch in the larger streets and a few elsewhere, but that far out the bulk of the area was total. Few antique beche stylings, few steep roofs or many-paned windows, these were hobbled factories and warehouses. A handful of decades old, often broken glassed, at half capacity if open. Boarded facades, grocery shops fronted with wire, Older fronts in tumble-down of classical Besh style, some houses colonised and made chapels and drug houses, some burnt out and left as crude carbon renditions of themselves. One of the things about this novel that I like, too, is that you mine the two different kinds of, of mysteries because... Um, we have here, obviously, from page one, a murder mystery, but also there's a mystery of for the reader as to what is the relationship between these cities, and that's a fun one to solve as well. Or, and you might not ever really solve it either. Well, I mean, I'm 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 very glad you think so. I mean, I, certainly the the nature of the relationship between Besh and Orcoma was what I hoped was that it was depicted in such a way that the reader would kind of uncover it over the first four or five chapters um, as Tiado Borlu is describing things because he never he never takes the time or bothers to explain exactly the setting because why would he? Because he lives there, he takes it for granted. Um, but we don't. So you have to kind of piece together little things he's saying um, and, and realise the nature of where it is you are. Um, and I hope that that, um, I hope that, that works. Um, but I mean, you're right, it is also, I hope, very sort of respectfully and faithfully a whodunit and I've tried very much to make this a crime novel 
um, I, I know when I get I get quite frustrated as, as someone who reads and writes within the kind of fantastic genre I get very frustrated when I read a book by someone writing vaguely within that paradigm but I have no sense that they have any respect or love for the field and that there's a certain kind of um, uneasiness with the with with their own settings uh, um, and I really really didn't want to be like that for crime so I, because I don't have a tradition of writing in this field so I really didn't want like readers of classic mysteries to feel like I'd come in and hadn't had kind of you know real respect and faithfulness to those to those rules those protocols so I hope that you know um you know the, the book doesn't cheat you know I hope it operates it, it is I hope a whodunit you know that there is no cheating with the evidence there is no cheating with the you know the 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 dramatis personae you know um and at the same time, hopefully, you know, doing some of these sort of urban exploration things you're talking about and this slightly surreal element. But that doesn't stop it being very straightforwardly and faithfully a crime novel as well. I think really the procedural elements enhance some of the elements of the fantastic. I mean, it gives it it's it offers you a way to really ground it and make the unreal seem very real. Well, there's two different, I mean, there's at least right, two, I should say. There's at least two different ways of doing the fantastic. And what my stuff so far has mostly done is that kind of um, quite overtly sort of um, defamiliarizing thing of a very strange, very magical setting, a very um, kind of um, alienated from the everyday setting so that there's this kind of burst of um, of sort of culture shock right up front and this sense of complete strangeness. But there is another way of doing it, which is to rather than having kind of radical defamiliarization, to have kind of half familiarization where the reader's uncertainty and estrangement um, in, in a good way <laughs> um, come not from having no clue about this setting, but from a kind of slightly uneasy sense that they half recognize this setting. Um, that it's almost familiar, but that there's enough of a kink, there's enough of a of a twist that they're not quite on stable ground. And those are two different ways of doing the fantastic, and they allow you to do different things. Um, and this is not a qualitative distinction, they're just different techniques. And having done the former most of my books so far, I wanted to, to try with the latter in this one. And um, I know like some readers, for example, have... I've read a couple of people who've sort of said that, you know, they felt a bit let down by this book because it wasn't as as weird in their terms, as as strange, as as kind of, you know, there weren't as, you know, there weren't the monsters, there wasn't this kind of extraordinary landscape as in the previous books. And I would sort of say, you know, obviously I'm I'm sorry they didn't like it as much, but for me, it's just much more interesting to try a new thing. And I think personally that the if this book works, it works because it is so nearly the real world, much, much better than if it had been set in, you know, on an asteroid or in a, in a magical kingdom. That, that's an interesting, <laughs> that's a really interesting comment. Now, you, you do use some elements of the fantastic in this book. And could you talk about developing those? Do you, did, you, did you develop this um, out, outside uh, of, of, the, of the plot of the novel? I, I mean... Did you think about this setting and think this here's this is this kind of yeah fantastic setting? Well, there's two. Yes, I mean the short answer is yes. I mean I thought about the setting before I thought about making it a crime novel, and I thought about the setting before I had the plot. Um, but that's always the case for me. Every book I've ever done, I, I think of a setting and then kind of layer on on top of that layer events and characters until I've layered on a plot, and then I kind of work through there. Um, the setting tends to be my draw. 
Um, the second thing to say is like I'm I'm not I'm not arguing with you like when you say it, there are elements of the fantastic and basically I I I think that's a perfectly fair comment but there is a sort of a, a, a question mark in a sense like uh, if you look at a book like the you know the books like the Gormenghast trilogy there is a certain you know Mervyn Peake there is a certain question mark about whether or not those should be described as fantasy because they're set in this kind of extremely odd uh, environment but nothing necessarily overtly supernatural or science fictional happens everything that happens is plausible it's just that you don't quite know where you are and the thing about the city in the city is that it uh, what i wanted to do was leave a certain question mark about the exact nature of 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 this place so that um it is not in fact you know sort of uncontroversially straightforward that in terms of the rules of the world it is a fantastic setting. It is a very, very odd setting. It's a setting that you, you know, hopefully is fantastic in the kind of broader sense. But in terms of kind of, you know, that kind of rule of reality, um, it's actually there's an there's an open question there. Well, that's one of the things I think you do quite well in this novel is to make us wonder as we're reading, where is this place? Mm. I, I I should know where this place is. And, and could you talk about uh, integrating this place that you've created and making it feel like the reader feel like it's part of our world? Well, I mean, it's, it, it wasn't a sort of complicated thing to do because, as I say, I wanted to make it feel like it was, you know, like like these, these cities are at the edge of Europe somewhere, probably in Eastern Europe, not quite sure. So, um, y- you know, uh, and, you know, if you go to, you know, if you go to Prague, if you go to uh, um, any, any, any place that's sort of, you know, that feels very different in terms of its architecture and so on. Uh, Nonetheless, it also still has, you know, hip-hop clubs and uh, internet cafes and probably Starbucks by now. And, you know, and so that's really, because this is set in, you know, in the modern world, in our world, that's the nature of these cities. So Beschel has a very different sort of architectural and political heritage than, you know, New York or London. But that doesn't mean that the kids who live there aren't, you know, Googling and, and, you know, they probably have Twitter feeds, although I hadn't sort of, <laughs> there's no Twitter in the book, but uh, I can't do everything, you know, and they, and they mention, you know, Chuck Paulinick and Van Morrison and stuff because they're part of the modern world, um, just in a city that we haven't quite been to yet. And hopefully that makes it feel uh, sort of realistic. We were kind of embedded in, 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 in reality, even though it's not quite recognizable. Uh, the internet is a big help for you in this way, and I love that that you have the the .dot uq domain names. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I don't know. I mean, my my kind of working hypothesis is that being the age I am, I'm 36, and um, so you know, not only do I, I completely passionately love the internet, but part of you know, for all the immense seas of nonsense and rubbish that's on it, there's also you know loads of great things on it, and part of the reason I I I like it so much is because I remember when we didn't have it. And I think a lot of, you know, you know, as as I grow older, a lot of my friends who are now adults, you know, um, you know, more or less don't remember. They just don't know, you know, and, and, and I sort of, you know, it makes me feel like a kind of, you know, like an old guy waving a stick by a by a log fire. But I'm just like, you have no idea, you know, um, 15 years ago, you know, you couldn't just if you heard something that intrigued you, you couldn't just look it up and within 10 seconds know what you were talking about, you know. So in terms of depicting realistic modern people in a modern world, although one 
slightly, slightly around the corner from where 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 you've actually been. Um, of course, they're going to use the internet. Of course, they are. You know, and um, especially because they're cops. You know, and and they they need information. They need it quickly. So, uh, and then I hope that this will become kind of recursive, so that you know. I would consider it, you know, a great, great honor to this book if one or two readers in the early pages got slightly confused about the setting and looked up Beschel and Alcoma to find out where they were. You know, that would be great. And I I'm, I'm, wouldn't be surprised if it happened. One of the things you do very well in this book is uh, language. Um, just in terms of the naming protocols, the names you give the characters, the names you give the cities, and I love that uh, Fulana detail. <laughs> Tell us about Fulana detail and all the other names you use in this book. Well, the name, the naming thing. I mean, basically, because there's two different languages. There's there's Besh and Ilitan, and so I wanted to make each language plausible. So you, you know, you work out what kind of phonemes one language would have as compared to the other, and what that means, which letters. Um, in English are going to recur much more than other letters. And so, you know, Besh has a lot of sort of um, soft uh, Zs and, um, you know, it, it's uh, more kind of um, Polish or Germanic. Uh, Ilitan has more Ls and Ts and dentals and, and it's sort of more um, uh, sort of Turco-Arabic perhaps. But, but you know, not intended to be explicitly those languages but just have those kind of feelings to them um and once you've decided on those phonemes and then you just try and be, kind of be um be sort of coherent about which ones you use where uh that gives a sort of sense of totality to the language i think the thing you talk about fulana details when they when they find um the woman who's who's dead and they don't know her name they call her fulana detail which is their version of jane doe um and the thing about that that is that that is a reference to that I read an article about all the different names for John and Jane Doe's around the world because every you know virtually every law enforcement department in the world has has a default name for an unknown unknown dead person um and uh you know and in some areas of eastern europe fulana detail is is almost what it is called. That's my kind of besh translation of the of the words that they actually use in some Eastern European police forces. So, uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of made a little bit a little bit besh's own, but it's um, it's not in, ta- in fact sort of invented out of whole cloth. It is a reference to some specific terms that that various Eastern European police cultures do use. Now, as a as a mystery, you really do. I think cleave to to the the expectations of the mystery genre in terms of, you know, the the laying out of clues and and you know the the conservation of suspects is what I call call it. Could you talk about doing that? Well, I'm very very glad you think so. I'm, I mean, because I grew up watching my mum read uh, crime novels and and you know she would she would give me the best of them and 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 so I would hit and she was a huge crime fan across all. You know, cozies. Uh, you know, uh, hard-boiled. You know, horse crime novels and everything. But so, so I got to kind of hear about these, um, as about as you say about these protocols, about these rules, and I know how very kind of seriously crime readers take them. And so you hear these extraordinary conversations whereby crime readers will say, "Oh, I really didn't like that book. Um, it cheated." I'm like. How can a book cheat? What does that mean? What an extraordinary idea. So I was kind of fascinated by this. So you kind of look into it and it's like, you know, the the very particular relationship 
that a crime reader has to, uh, to, to, to a book, whereby the book is expected to offer them a certain type of laying out of, as you say, you know, laying out of the suspects, laying out of clues and so on. Um, uh, the ending can be unexpected, but it can't come ex nihilo. You can't suddenly introduce a new character two pages from the end, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, I'm as, well, I'm glad you think that it, it is faithful. To, I mean, I really, really wanted to play that absolutely straight and not not mess around with it so that, you know, someone, my hope would be that someone who reads a lot of mysteries and has never read a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel can read this, can think, gosh, this is a very unusual setting, but not get bogged down by that necessarily and just read it to, to try and work out who done it and to and to feel at the end, you know, that was that was acquitted with, with honor and I wasn't cheated, you know. And, and you did. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the setting now. So, again, if any, any listeners are um, sensitive to spoilers, then they'll need to... Uh, They'll need to, at this point, click off the interview. China, one of the things that, that you do very well in this book is to, in, the, in this setting, we've got two cities. Could you explain their relationship to us now? Well, um, they exist in the same space. So um, basically, it, it, it's a question whereby uh, if you're walking down a street, you know that that um, a street may may very well be shared by the two cities, so half of the people on the street live in one city, half live on another. You know, every every second house might be in Beshal, um, and in between those will be houses in Alcoma, and because these are two separate cities that live by two separate um, laws and two separate cultures, um, you know, each each group of citizenry is relating only to the. Um, only to the to the buildings and to the infrastructure and to the law and to the police within their own city, which obviously because you're also being jostled by people who live in a different city from you creates unique sort of um, unique complications. Um, and there's a there's a power that exists to to basically maintain the 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 skin between those two cities because um, because geographically speaking they're intermingled. So to maintain kind of juridical and political and cultural distinction, there has to be a power in place to make sure that um, they can't just bleed across into each other. And that power is, is breach, is a, something called breach. Let's hear another reading by China Mieville from his new book, The City and the City. The area was not crowded, but it was far from empty. Those who were out looked like landscape, like they were always there. There'd been fewer that morning, but not very markedly. Did you see Shookman working on the body? No. I was looking at what we passed, referring to my map. I got there after he was done. Squeamish, she said. No. Well, she smiled and turned the car. You'd have to say that, even if you were. True, I said, though it was not. She pointed out what passed for landmarks. I did not tell her I'd been in Cordvena early in the day, sounding these places. Corwy did not try to disguise her police clothes because that way those who saw us, who might otherwise think we were there to entrap them, would know that that was not our intent, and the fact that we were not in a bruise, as we called the black and blue police cars, told them that neither were we there to harass them. Intricate contracts. Most of those around us were in Beshel, so we saw them. Poverty deshaped the already stayed drab cuts and colours that enduringly characterise Besh clothes, what has been called the city's fashionless fashion. 
Of the exceptions, some we realised when we glanced, were elsewhere, so unsaw. But the younger Besh were also more colourful, their clothes more pictured than their parents. The majority of the Besh men and women, does this need saying, were doing nothing but walking from one place to another, from late shift work, from homes to other homes or shops. Still, though, the way we watched what we passed made it a threatening geography, and there were sufficient furtive actions occurring that that did not feel like the rankest paranoia. One of the things that's, I think, fascinating in terms of the mystery aspects and the fantastic aspects of this novel is this idea of seen and unseen. And I think this is, gets to a, a, a really interesting uh, perception for readers. It's something that we do all the time and we don't really think about it. Well, again, I think this is what, what I was interested in was taking very everyday logic and just extrapolating it a little bit, just exaggerating it a little bit. And as you say, we all unsee and unhear uh, things all the time. And we have to, because otherwise you're talking about sort of sensory overload. Um, but it's not innocent. You know, the, the, the decisions about what get perceived and what don't get perceived are not politically or culturally innocent. They come laden with baggage. Um, um, and, you know, uh, you know, at a very, very simple level, if you're in a room full of, uh, you know, noise and then somebody says your name across the room, you'll hear your name, although you didn't hear anything else. You've been unhearing everything, but at some level you've been waiting just in case there was something you needed to hear. Um, very simple. But then, of course, that also has all kinds of political ramifications about the things that we choose to unsee or, or, or are persuaded to unsee. Um, and in this particular um, setting you know, one of the only ways you can possibly exist in this bizarre kind of coagulum of two cities is to not perceive those who are not in the same place as you because that would be terribly uh, discombobulating. And so you spend a lot of your time in Beshel unseeing all Comans and vice versa. And this, uh, in terms of uh, complicating a mystery plot, this offers you some really unique opportunities which you uh, explore using, you know, combining noir fiction and, and weird fiction in a manner that seems, um, I think, it, it reads, I think, more like a mystery than a fantasy. Well, I, it, it feels more, I mean, when one says a fantasy, we have such a particularly strong sense of what kind of genre you're getting, what kind of book you're getting. And that, to a certain extent, is a problem because actually the the house of fantasy has many rooms uh, and it would be nice if we had a more open-minded attitude to it. But I would agree. I think sort of in terms of kind of on the ground expectations of reading this is this is more this this cleaves very closely, as you say, to the kind of to the kind of crime crime thing. Um, uh, you know, and the setting is not foregrounded because it's taken for granted by the protagonist. And therefore, although it's incredibly important, it's not dwelt on except as it becomes relevant for the plot, uh, which it, of course, does. <laughs> um, um, the other thing I would say about unseeing, though, is is that what I'm quite interested in across the board is not just... Essentially, I suppose you can think of it as a, as a social taboo. It's a taboo to see, although it's backed up by law in this case. You know, it's a taboo to perceive or dwell on certain things. And that's true, and taboos are extremely powerful socially. But the thing that also interests me and that I don't think gets talked about enough is the way everyone cheats all the time. Taboos are both very, very strong and are also ignored regularly across the board, around culture. So 
um you know I, I i when i when i my my um undergraduate degree was in anthropology and we 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 learned a lot about taboos and i remember very much an interview um with with one of the kind of um uh, somebody in, in in a book explaining a menstrual taboo in 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 the society he was in and saying you know so you know uh, you you can't sleep with a woman who's menstruating it's extremely taboo you mustn't touch them you mustn't look at them you mustn't go anywhere near them uh, and and the anthropologist said oh okay so 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 you mustn't touch them and the guy goes no and then there's a pause and then he says well i mean you shouldn't but i mean you can you know i mean sometimes you might you know um and i think that the problem is we we sometimes stress taboos at the expense of stressing the way we all cheat and duck and dive around taboos and what i would what i wanted to do in this book was to take quite seriously not only the taboo itself as a very real social phenomenon but also the way it kind of gets wriggled around all the time archaeology plays a, a, an important part in this book and in, in a couple of, of ways in terms of helping you establish create for the reader the reality uh, of the unique setting and also in terms of um, complicating the plot. And, and I love this. Could you talk a little bit about the Antikythera mechanism? <laughs> the, yes, I've, not, I've never been quite sure how one says this. The Antikythera mechanism, I don't quite know. It's um, basically, I mean, and I'm not an archaeologist, so I'm... I'm 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 sort of um, flying a little blind here, but from what I, I've you know I, you're right. Archaeology features quite heavily in the book. There's a a lot of the setting is around an archaeological dig in in Alcoma, and archaeology also operates as a kind of uh, as a sort of hopefully reasonably cheerful metaphor for a particular way of investigating things. Um, the Antikytheria mechanism, and with apologies to archaeologists uh, for my mispronunciation, is uh, basically, it was something that was dug up. It's mentioned in one line in the book, and it, and the reason I was interested in it is because no one knows what it's for. They can tell that it's extremely advanced for the era that it um, is was dug up, that that it appears to come from. They can tell that the workmanship is incredible. It's beautiful. It clearly does something very sophisticated, but damned if one can be quite sure what that is, you know. And I I I'm, I love this notion of something which is clearly logical but where the logic is opaque and that's different obviously from something which is not logical and so quite a lot of the way within this book um, uh, particularly with regards to the archaeology but also in, in, in general as a kind of organizing principle I was interested in this idea of you know something which is very obviously logical but that you can't quite make sense of what that logic is. You create a gallery of wonderful characters in the book, and the voice of Tyrador Borlu is really, really interesting. He's kind of a loyal stiff. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's... I, I don't think I can really sort of take credit for him being a particularly original character, and my kind of... Um, my justification for this, um, and I hope everyone will work with me here, is is basically that I was trying to be so faithful to noir to 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 particular kind of you know crime paradigm and so for that reason he is the kind of somewhat lugubrious you know decent but flawed guy who is walking down mean streets um and who wants to do his best he's you know um honorable but but a bit battered by the world and you know he's 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 a chandler-esque you know guy um what you know hopefully he's and and you see here you see that you see that persona you know throughout crime you see um 
I mean, Martin Cruz Smith uses him brilliantly, that uses versions of that figure brilliantly in, in, in Gorky Park and Red Star and Wolves Eat Dogs and so on. And, and you see it in lots of other books as well. Um, and what I wanted to do, I suppose, was be, you know, was, was kind of riff off that figure, that kind of, you know, slightly alienated, lonely, but, you know, humorous. He's a, I think he's quite a humorous man kind of walking through the streets, but try and do your own thing with it as well. And one thing I did want to do very much was he's not someone given over to self-examination. He's very he's very smart. Um, he's very dogged. Um, but I mean, he's not genius, but he's, you know, he's a clever enough guy. But 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 what he doesn't do very often is investigate his own feelings, which means that we don't very often hear him say, I thought I felt I imagined this is how I was reacting. Um, but he is quite sort of um, rational and contemplative. So he spends quite a lot of his time thinking about other stuff. So the hope is that the reader is never basically told how he's feeling, but ends up feeling it sort of behind behind his own back. You inhabit his head and see the world the way he sees the world. And, and so um, you end up sort of feeling his emotions, even if he's not dwelling on them. That that, that was my, my, my aspiration. Um, when you're writing a mystery, um, one of the big aspects of it is conspiracy and concealing <laughs> things and and this also filters into archaeology and also I think into our worldview urban myths there oh, always yeah. seems to be something hidden that we're not yeah. quite getting absolutely I mean the, the the notion that you know uh, you know there are more things in heaven and earth Horatio you know um, uh, and that translates into all kinds of different ways so it translates into the idea that there is you know a kind of realm of the of 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 the of the magic just beyond the skin of the everyday it translates into the idea that there's a kind of a hidden city underneath the one that we inhabit i think it also as you as you imply translates through to a lot of um you know of conspiracy theories about you know uh, I mean, I, I think, for example, that in some, a book like The Da Vinci Code, the idea that there is this kind of hidden mechanism of of, of kind of um, a, a, a kind of secret group making order out of the chaos of history, but not yet quite perceived, but leaving traces for those clever enough to see them. I think that's a, a kind of slightly non-fantasticated version of exactly the same thing. Um, and you see it in, you know, Umberto Eco, you know, Foucault's pendulum. You see it all over the place. And and I did want to kind of take a look at that. I, that kind of yearning for a kind of uh, a meaning just behind the everyday and the political corollary of that, which is a certain kind of fascination with secret histories, um, secret cabals, and so on and so forth. Well, in many ways, this book certainly is it's in, in itself a, a secret history. Of what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think of, of the of a city that doesn't exist. Well, the thing about those secret histories is I'm both very, very interested in them, as most of us are, and also somewhat skeptical of them. Um, uh, and I think this is probably the, the situation of a lot of people. I love, you know, I love that sense of there being something greater, but... You know, and, and and at a kind of aesthetic level, at a literary level, at an artistic level, I love it, and I love a lot of the art that that creates. Um, I am, however, you know, I'm not a religious man. Um, I'm not uh, someone who is a believer in the supernatural. For the most part, with a few important exceptions, I tend to be, you know, somewhat skeptical of a lot of the um, the claims made about sort of you know secret groups and conspiracies and so on. Um, 
Um, and so, and 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 also, I think the political logic that informs a lot of those um, positions, I'm sometimes sceptical of. So I kind of want it both ways. I want to indulge that fascination and that love, while also remaining, to a certain extent, kind of sceptical and and critical of of that drive. And I think one can have it both ways, particularly in fiction and art, because you don't have to come down on a conclusion in a really overt way. Could you talk about? Um genre in this in this book uh, when we read this some of us might you start out thinking well this is noir fiction <laughs> and then uh, you get pretty far and no this is a little bit too weird for noir fiction where, yeah. where do you see the readers of this of this book putting this i hope uh i mean i think i think as a matter of sort of um uh, economic fact it's probably being shelved under science fiction because that's where my my books tend to be shelved however I, I i would love if it were also finding its way onto the mystery shelves um in terms of its 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 generic place i'm a great fan as you know we've talked about this before i'm a great fan of movements moments manifestos uh, i think i think they're i th- i think i think that kind of uh, argument and performance is is fun and at its best kind of elucidating and amusing and all those things i just don't see what's not to like about making up names for movements. I just don't see what is not to like about that. And so at the moment, I'm having an argument with a friend because what I say is what we've got, there's a whole space of books that are doing this kind of thing in various ways. And I think that what you have is weird noir, or as I call it, noir, N-O-I-R-D, pronounced noir. Uh, he, however, is advocating that we call it weird boiled because it's weird and hard boiled. Now, uh, so I think of this as, you know, the battle of the memes. Um, and and uh, I set these free um, into culture to see which one, if either, wins. Vote noir, <laughs> 09. <laughs> China, one of the things that, that that is common in mysteries, because they deal with death, death you also have your characters who experience grief. Hmm. And could you talk about the part that grief plays in this novel? Well, um, for me, I mean, the book is written for my mum who died a couple of years ago. Um, and it was I was hoping to finish it before she died uh, because it was a present to her. And I didn't, I wasn't able to finish it perfectly in time, but the book is dedicated to her. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's saturated with, uh, with, with you know my love for my mum and 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 you know I think I think if you have experienced bereavement then you know your relationship to grief and uh, you know kind of life and death and all those things of course inevitably changes enormously um, uh, and I, and so for me that's a very important part of this 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 feels extremely much like my mum's book um, I. You know, I don't want to be, you know, a, a, you know, a, a grief bore. But, I mean, grief is an intensely personal thing, um, and the book has to, it has to stand on its own two feet. I mean, all the, you know, uh, millions of people who, you know, never met my mum have to, you know, the book has to work for them too. You know what I mean? So I, I it, it's not a kind of private conversation. I hope, but for me, there is, there is that element, and that's very important. You're working on some other kind of work right now. Tell us uh, uh, where where you are with with other novels. Are are, are we going to get to visit Baslog again? <laughs> I, I've got loads of different things at different levels of of um, of unfinishedment. Um, one of them is is very nearly done. I, th- I hope it's just a couple more, like maybe six or seven more weeks. And it's it's basically it's more like my earlier stuff. It's a big fat urban fantasy, although not set in 
in Baslag. And then I'm kind of interested in, you know, as with this book, I'm kind of interested in trying different voices, different different paradigms, different traditions. Um, I'd like to do some more uh, some more fiction for younger readers, and I'm working on something. I have an idea for something. I have a book that is n- nearly finished that I've been sort of sitting on for a couple of years that's very different again, that's more of a kind of science fiction novel. It has spaceships and aliens in it, but, you know, written again in a, quite a different voice and so on. Um, and the thing about trying to do these different things is that, um, you know, inevitably if readers have liked a particular way of writing from from you, uh, they may not like it when you change that way of writing. And I think that's completely reasonable as a response. And we can't, as a writer, you can't kind of get snippy about that. You you have no expect, you have no right to expect people to follow you whatever you do. What you can do is ask for an indulgence, and you can say, look, you know, I've done these books in this way, and I'm really glad you liked them. I'd like to try and do something different. It may, I hope that you'll really like it. Maybe you won't like it as much as the earlier ones, but hopefully you might think that it's more interesting to try a few different things, and that over the course of a few books, you know, that the, the changing rhythms of, you know, what, what I'm doing, may, maybe it'll make for an interesting shape, I hope, you know. So I, I very much hope that I can kind of persuade people that it's 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 a it's an interesting thing to sort of try out these various voices and various styles and approaches the question about baslag um i'm very open to going back to baslag but i think i i don't want to go back 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 to baslag until i can find a way of doing so that doesn't undermine the three books i've already written i think part of the problem with sequels and and so on is that although they're written for the best reasons they often for me as a reader sort of some in some way kind of slightly slightly undermine the books that have gone before because part of what one likes about these worlds is that one doesn't know everything and the more you tell the more you know the more you uncover the more domesticated that setting gets and I don't want to domesticate that setting so that's why I'm treading carefully could you talk about going when you go between these different voices and styles could you talk about how one informs the other I mean well, we see more noirish elements in in Baslag, or <laughs> more Baslagian elements in in uh, science fiction. Or? I don't. I don't. I just don't know, to be honest. I mean, um, inevitably. I mean, I obviously think there's a strong continuous thread with all the books. And I, you know, to me, I read the City in the City, and it's very, very clearly a book by me. I think. And I see the elements that are shared exactly with Iron Council and Unlondon and Perdido and King Rat. Um, but at the same time, also, there's differences. So I'm, I don't want to suggest that there's a kind of kind of ventriloquizing a completely new you know, voice every single time. But there is a certain sort of different cadences, different ways of relating both to story and to language. Um, but of course, inevitably, they all bleed into each other. I mean... Um, in complicated ways. I mean, The City in the City is is a different book than it would have been, even if the story had been exactly the same, if I'd written it before I wrote The Scar, you know. Um, And they inform each other, um, both thematically um, and also inevitably in terms of the lessons you're learning about language. The honest truth is that I think I'm the worst person to make those judgments. I think in terms of how they, you know, what are the shared threads, what are the broken threads, you know, I'm too close to it. And I think that writers are often the last people to know what it is they're doing. And I think it's really more for readers. I mean, I can tell you what I think I'm doing. I can tell you what I hope I'm doing. I can tell you what I'd like to do. But I may be wrong about it. You know, I think it's probably more for readers to look in and be able to say, this is what's working. This is what's not. This is 
the common threads, these are the breaks, because readers have a much more objective eye about it than I do. Nonfiction? Oh, yeah, lots of nonfiction I'd like to do. Um, um, uh, it's something I've had to put on the back burner for a couple of years, and I'm very excited about sort of picking up on it again. Um, I have... Um, uh, I enjoy writing sort of sort of academic essays and so on, and I'm trying to do some more. I'd like to write a book about weird fiction from the 1920s, a kind of critical a critical overview. Um, uh, loads of stuff. <laughs> and politics. You stood for parliament, didn't you? I did. Um, do you, are you going to go back? Um, well, I mean, I'm still politically active, although not as, not as active as I was in 2001 when I stood. Um, and certainly I'm open to, you know, I mean, I don't think that the political activism will stop. Um, it, it kind of ebbs and flows depending on how much you can do at any time, what's going on in the world. But there's various um, issues that are very kind of important to me and that I'll still continue to be sort of active in. Um, there's always a there's always a tension, I think, between, uh, and I think, you know, all activists feel this to varying degrees. There's a tension between one's political activism and the other things you want to do because they're often very kind of all-encompassing and they take an enormous amount of focus. So I think when I'm when I'm writing at my best, I'm probably not a very good activist. And I apologize to my, you know, activist friends for that. And then the, the corollary is probably also true. So it's a constant kind of oscillation between the two and an attempt to fail again and fail better. Samuel Beckett, always, always, always a, good, a good, a good, a good man to end on. I think, yeah. <laughs> I've been speaking with China Mieville. His new novel is *The City in the City*. Thank you for joining me, China. Thanks so much for having me.